Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. I'm very low tech, so I don't even have a whole bunch of slides for you guys, but I'm going to show that I do own a phone uh, and just read briefly from Genesis chapter 11. Um, before I speak to you, to unpack a bit of this and to draw some parallels between Genesis 11 and the the story of the Tower of Babel and cryptocurrency, decentralized finance and blockchain technology, see if I can pull some things together through the Christian message. So, the Tower of Babel. I'm reading out of the ESV. You've got the key verse up there for you, so feel free to scroll along or just to listen. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city." Okay, sounds a bit abstract, sounds a bit random. How is this guy going to come and connect that story with cryptocurrency in 2022 in Singapore? Well, the simple line that connects that story of the Tower of Babel to this current round and future rounds of the digital technology revolution is this word, technology. And the word technology comes from a Greek word, techne, and techne means very simply to make or to do. And so, one of the reasons I wanted to start with that passage is because what we see is that it is intrinsic to the human spirit and human nature to make and to do, to innovate, to develop, to try to, to, try to improve and enhance our quality of life and the quality of life for those around us through making and thinking and creatively doing, or otherwise through this thing called technology. That's just the other word for it. So, there's been technology for a long time, the evidence of technology is in that passage. Bricks, mortar, the capacity to reinforce buildings with structural integrity and build upwards, that's all technology. A spoon, a fork, it's technology. Carpet, shoes, it's all technology. It's things that we have made and done to make our lives better. And so when we think about something like cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, decentralized finance, and I know that there are many of you here who are experts, who are first movers, who are practitioners, all of whom will know infinitely more than me. For those of you who are not and you're a bit more like me, I've only been reading up on this stuff for the last six to 12 months, what we're basically talking about is the privatization and the digitalization of money. So we've actually digitalized money for some time now, ever since the first debit card and credit card, ever since checks were invented, that to some level there was the virtualization and digitalization of money. Why this is different is because we're now talking about the privatization of money. So before money drew its value, currency drew its value from central governmental authorities that gave it value. In Singapore, it's the monetary authority of Singapore. 
So when you take out a piece of, a, you know, a $5, $10 note in Singapore, the reason that has value is because the MAS says it does. Now, digital currency or cryptocurrency, as an example, is not imputed with value based on a central government authority. It's imputed with value based on scarcity, yes, so we're still in the supply-demand kind of space, but it's through the provenance and kind of ownership chain that we can track through this thing called blockchain technology, which is a shared ledger of transactions that verifies that what you have actually is what, it, what you claim it to be. Okay? So that's a very, very short and very dirty and very overly simplistic explanation. If you didn't understand any of that, that's totally fine. You don't need to understand that to understand the rest of my message. Okay? But we're talking about cryptocurrency, the digitalization and privatization of money. And there's lots of fantastic things, capacities, capabilities that are going to be possible and that are already possible because of this. Talk to the practitioners among you. As far as I understand it, SP has more crypto experts per capita than any other church in Singapore. So you guys should know all about this. In fact, what I should have done is just got one of you guys up to just give the three-minute summary. But that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm trained in. But here was what happened with the Tower of Babel. They were involved, as people involved in this round of digital revolution, they were involved in that particular round of industrial revolution. And people say we're in the fourth industrial revolution. If you read any kind of history, we're in the 25th or 26th, right? So there's, there's, a, there's an industrial revolution every one and a half generations or so. It just depends on how you group it. And back then, they were doing what people are doing now with technology. They were innovating, they were creating, and they were working out use cases. What's the best way to deploy this technology? To generate wealth, to improve the quality of life, to apply it to different aspects of society. That's exactly what they were doing. And it was all positive. It was all good. It was all going towards human flourishing. They were going to build cities. They decided to make this amazing building. And then two problems came up. They made two mistakes. While they were using this techne, this technology, for prosperity and for flourishing, they made two huge mistakes. The same two mistakes that we are always at risk of making with all of the technology that we have. Mistake number one, they began to worship and objectify the technology itself, the tower the bricks, the mortar, what they could do. That became actually an object of worship rather than what they could do with the technology. The second thing they began to do, which we all do very well and very easily as human beings, is they used the technology to glorify themselves. And we see it very clearly in that Tower of Babel passage. Let us build it to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. Humankind has not changed for thousands and thousands of years. Even today, we are using our technology to make a name for ourselves. And it's for these two risks that pour out of every broken human heart that we need to be very careful, not with the fact that we have new technologies, not the, with the fact that there is going to be and there already is decentralized finance and it's going to grow and thrive, but with why we have it and what we plan to do with it and how we act through it. So that is the key. The problem with those guys at the Tower of Babel is that they forgot about their first principles. They forgot about who they were and the purpose for which they were made. They forgot about moral frameworks and they became all about the application of the technology and their own glorification. And that's where the parallel lies with 
digital currency, with cryptocurrency, with blockchain tech, with DeFi, with all of this. That is the parallel. Now, there's probably, in my very limited and uneducated view, one of the best movies ever made way back in the 1900s called Cool Runnings. And the older people here, movie buffs, will know this movie, and it's quite tragic and shocking to me that more and more people are so young they don't remember this movie. But please go and look at it. I think, I think it might even actually be on, on Disney Plus or Netflix or something, but please go and watch it. And it tells the true story of a group of Jamaican bobsledders from Jamaica that go to the first ever Winter Olympics. And, I mean, it's an amazing story for a lot of irrelevant reasons that I don't have time to go through with you guys today. But there's this wonderful scene in that movie where the captain, Doris Bannock, who is a sprinter who's become the captain of this bobsled team, just by pure ambition and grit, is talking to his coach, who is a veteran of the Winter Olympics and has coached gold medals teams before. And he says, coach, I just want to win a gold medal. That's all I want. It must have been amazing when you won that gold medal. And then the coach, beautifully played by John Candy, by the, a guy by the name of Irv Blitzer, he's portraying, he says this. He says, Doris, a gold medal can be a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, you will never be enough with it. Cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, blockchain tech, and for that matter, technology of any kind, can be a wonderful thing. But if we are not enough without it, we will never be enough with it. And now in that context, I want to talk to you about three desires of the human heart that are reflected in technological advancement, particularly this round of the DeFi revolution. Three desires of the human heart that point to three first principles that we need to recommit to and focus on to make sure that our use of digital technology and digital currency and decentralized finance is calibrated correctly and that we are healthier and more optimized in the core principles of human flourishing for which we were made. Okay, and so the three things I want to talk about are the human search for wealth. So the search for wealth, number one. Secondly, the search for novelty. And thirdly, the search for utility. Now, these are not crypto things. These are things that we are always searching for all the time, but we're particularly searching for them through technology. Every round of the Industrial Revolution has seen this same search, the search for wealth creation, the search for novelty, and the search for utility. And so I want to talk about those three things and three things that they point to, three first principles, and then try and wrap all of that up in what the Christian message actually has to say. So firstly, the search for wealth. Now, the economists of you, among you will know that before the first round of the most contemporary Industrial Revolution, so before the printing press, basically, Global economic growth was pretty much non-existent. It tracked at about 0.1%. That's the best that we can track it to for the data that we have. Global economic growth, before we got industrial, tracked at 0.1%, which is basically a rounding error, right? So it's basically not really tracking at anything. So it's not that there wasn't wealth, but the wealth that was out there was held by very few people, right? It was held by kings and queens and lords and aristocrats and oligarchs and people further down the line in the economy weren't really generating wealth. They were just kind of making enough to get by. So almost negligible economic growth. Since the first modern industrial revolution, that has gone from 0.1% per year globally to an average of 4% a year globally. Obviously, much faster in some parts of the world at different times, but an average of 4% for the last 300 years or so. 
three or four hundred years. Now, that's a 40-fold increase. That's significant. If any of you went to work tomorrow and your salary had increased by 40-fold, that would change the way you think. That would change the way you live. That would have an impact on your life, no matter how much you're making today. A 40-fold increase. And since that time, wealth became central to human motivation, to human success drivers, to human fulfillment drivers. Ever since that time, over those last 400 years or so, money became a big part of what we deemed to be successful. We connected at that point money and the creation of wealth with flourishing. The problem is, of course, what all the data tells us and what our own hearts tell us, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we need more than money in order to flourish. And yet we seem so focused so much of the time on generating and creating wealth. And when a technology comes along that enables that, there's always a risk. It's not always this way, but there's always the risk that we will jump into it and run with it for the wrong reasons, because we are so committed to the generation of wealth. Walt Whitman, the great American poet, famously wrote, when I peruse the conquered fame of heroes and the victories of mighty generals, I do not envy the heroes, nor do I envy the rich man in his great house. So Whitman's basically saying, when I see all these wealthy, successful people in the world today, I don't envy them. Why is he saying that? The key is in the first phrase, when I peruse the conquered fame. What he's saying is that all fame and wealth and status in this world is ultimately conquered. It's going to be conquered or it's already conquered. At any case, in any case, it's intrinsically vulnerable and not reliable. Something is going to come along and get rid of it, either inflation or an economic shock or a recession or a political revolution or a war or a drunk driver that runs a red light when one of your loved ones is in the car crossing an intersection or a terminal illness diagnosis or a lost loved one or a lost job or a broken relationship or a broken heart. Anything in this world that we build, monetary or not, is conquered fame. Now, Whitman wrote that, I think, in the 1900s. But to, around 2,000 years before that, we know someone else said, do not store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. Those are the words of Jesus. He was saying exactly the same thing. And the leadership and economic trend theorists tell us this again and again. They're telling us again now as if it's a new discovery. I'm astounded that people continue to make money with these kinds of insights that everyone should know, that we're living in a VUCA world again, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. It's VUCA. And they point to all of the things from the Ukraine, through to supply chain constraints, to the rise of China, US-China relations, trade tensions. They point to all of this, to COVID, and they say, the world's more VUCA than it ever was. When you look through history, the world's always VUCA. It's always volatile, it's always uncertain, it's always complex, it's always ambiguous. These same theorists in the 70s were pointing to different things and saying it then. They did it in the 80s, they did it in the 90s, they're saying it now. The point is, whether we look at Walt Whitman or the econ economic theorists, or Jesus Christ himself, they're all right. They're all saying wealth that we build today in this world that we store up is going to be conquered one way or another. It's already vulnerable. It's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, it's ambiguous. It's not worth building your identity or your sense of flourishing on. So what do we need then? If the search for wealth is not the way, what is the way? 
There was a Harvard longitudinal study that they conducted over about 75 years where they basically got, I think, 10 or 15,000 people and they just followed them for their entire lives. And they were trying to track what the markers of life satisfaction and flourishing actually were. And they assumed that it was going to be that wealth was going to be important. I don't think anyone assumed that wealth was going to be all of it, but I think people assumed that wealth would be part of the story. And when they got to the end of this study, what they showed was there was absolutely no statistical correlation between wealth and flourishing, between wealth and fulfillment. In fact, once you get beyond the necessities of life being provided, the correlation literally disappears. So yes, there is a difference between someone earning $10,000 a year and someone earning $100,000 a year. But there's statistically no difference between someone who's on an income of $100,000 and someone who's on an income of $100 million. Statistically nothing. Zero. What did the study find was a more powerful correlator? Well, it did find something. It said there's a lot of things that matter, but one thing matters more than everything else. It's a secular study, remember, by Harvard University. One thing that matters more than anything else in the context of human flourishing, it's the strength and authenticity of our relationships. Our friendships, our marriages, if we are married, our spousal relationship, our workmates, our classmates, our colleagues, our other family members, our friends, our neighbours. It's the authenticity and strength of our relationships with the people around us. Humankind is built for relationships. And technology, by definition of what it is, always has a risk and a potential to draw us away from relationality. And so my first encouragement is that our search for wealth is a good search. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not intrinsically evil. But our search for wealth, especially in the context of decentralised finance and this next round of monetary revolution, our search for wealth needs to be superseded by our commitment to relationship and relationality. And for those of you who are in the crypto space, you already know this, you feel the tensions. There are a couple of very simple examples. One is that crypto markets, unlike equities markets, never close. You can't go for a drink with your friends and then go out for a meal with your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend on Friday after the market's closed. That doesn't happen in crypto. It's always open, it's always there. So there's a relational risk there. Another one, and those of you who are practitioners in this space know this all too well, if you're honest, is that there is just a tendency to constantly check what's happening. Because these markets are so dynamic, they're much more dynamic and volatile than most of the other financial markets that we've created. Because of that, to do it and to do it well, you almost have to, or you feel like you have to at least, constantly be checking. Now that time that you are checking, doesn't matter how good a husband, a boyfriend, a wife, a mother you are, that is necessarily making you less good at whatever it is you're actually supposed to be doing. It necessarily makes you less relational, whether you like it or not. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do it, but it means we have to be aware of the risks. We have to be aware of what could happen. And so our search for wealth can continue, but it needs to be put in context, needs to be put in its right place, and most importantly, it needs to be superseded by a renewed commitment to what is much more important than wealth, relationality. Right? So our search for wealth needs to be superseded by our commitment to relationality and the relationships that we've been blessed with. That's our search for wealth. Secondly, our search for novelty. Now, this isn't just a, a crypto thing. This isn't even just a technology thing. This is just a human thing. We always love novelty, the new thing, the next thing, the innovation, right? The first mover thing, the next iPhone that comes out, the next 
you know, wearable tech that comes out, the, the next VR headset that comes out. Everyone's waiting always and keen on the next thing. That's a very natural human thing. And once again, that's not intrinsically negative. That's actually positive. That's how we actually develop and create knowledge and bodies of knowledge and inventions and ways of living that are actually better and optimize human relationality, flourishing, fulfillment, satisfaction. So the search for novelty is not a bad thing. But once again, the problem is if novelty becomes an object and an end in itself, then it's not geared for our flourishing. And Albert Einstein put this beautifully. He said way back, it's become appallingly obvious that our technology has surpassed our humanity. And so he's saying this around the time of the development of the atomic bomb. It's become appallingly obvious that our technology has surpassed our humanity. I think you could have said that 6,000 years ago. I think our technology actually surpassed our humanity when we you know, worked out what fire was. Why do I say that? Sounds a bit harsh, but I think Einstein was right and he's still right today. It's because there is an intrinsic moral brokenness to all people that is not changing at all. And that's his point. His point is not that our humanity should be growing. His point is that our humanity has never grown. Our moral brokenness and our moral struggles is always here. And technology just keeps moving all the time. There's always another thing and always a new thing. Now, some of you, if not most of you here, will, will have heard of Moore's Law. Right? It's just a general observation by, I think, the chairman of Intel at one point that, that basically identified correctly that the number of transistors that we can fit onto an integrated computer circuit for at least some time tended to double every couple of years. So our computing power tended to double every couple of years, which is significant. That's an exponential increase, right? Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who as far as I'm aware is not a Christian, he very helpfully said in one of his articles, the problem is there's no, Mor there's no Moore's law for human moral development and moral progress. Our moral goodness doesn't double every two years, our computing power doubles every two years, and our moral goodness or lack of goodness stays right there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Nobel Prize winner, he said, the line that divides good and evil cuts through every human heart. We're just as messed up as we've always been, right? And I know there are a lot of writers and thinkers and thought leaders far more intelligent and accomplished and famous than I am. People like Steve Pinker and Yuval Noah Harari and all of these guys, and they write a lot of good stuff, don't get me wrong, but on this point, they are absolutely wrong and they have absolutely no evidence and they write a lot of nonsense. They think that as our technology has improved, we are becoming better. As we move away from old superstitions, from belief in things like God and juvenile things, as we grow up as a civilization, we're getting better and better and better. And there's just no evidence for it. In fact, in the 20th century alone, we killed more of each other than in all 19 centuries before that put together. And we're well on our way to supersede that in this century. The last 100 hours in the Ukraine is just another glimpse. We are just as messed up as we've always been. There's more sex, sex slaves today than ever before in human history, in real and relative terms. And if we don't want to look at the big picture data, all we have to do, and this is sobering, is just look inside our own hearts and how, how much our moral goodness personally has actually improved in the last six months, last five years, last ten years. So there is an intrinsic brokenness that we ignore if we're only focused on novelty and the next thing and the next big thing. We need to find a solution to our intrinsic brokenness, to our moral brokenness. 
And so while the search for novelty is good, it needs to be superseded by a pathway to redemption. Redemption needs to supersede novelty. So novelty is good, but we can't get so distracted that we forget about the real problem. The real problem is in here. Our real deficiencies aren't technological deficiencies. We don't just need more cryptocurrencies or faster computing or more metaverses out there. What we need is, alongside those things perhaps, a solution to the brokenness inside. Right? So the search for wealth needs to be superseded by a commitment to relationship. And the search for novelty needs to be superseded by some pathway to redemption. Thirdly and finally, the search for utility. Now, there was a tech billionaire that said in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago that, and to his credit, he's actually done this successfully a few times, so he's allowed to say this. He said, being successful in today's capitalist societies is actually quite simple. All you have to do is develop monetizable digital products of utility. He said, all you have to do to be successful is to develop monetizable digital products of utility. So basically, just find a way to use the computing revolutions that we've been going through for the last 20 or 30 years or so, including everything surrounding and associated with decentralized finance, to build products of utility for people. And blockchain technology, arguably, is a, is a very good example of that. I think, I think it's a good example of it. And this search for utility is what the whole global system of capital allocation is geared towards. It's all about utility. John Stuart Mill, one of the grand philosophical grandfathers of modern liberalism, in which we have built this thing called a free market and in which all of this is happening, he said very clearly, the only purpose of freedom is to optimize utility. It's all about utility. It's all about utility. And living in Singapore, whether you've lived here your whole life, whether you've lived here just for a few years like I have, Singapore's a pretty good example of how you do this really well how you optimise utility. Because utility in the end is about, what is it about? It's about life expectancy, health, education, employment and financial outcomes. I used to work in politics, that's basically it, that's what we're trying to do. It's what governments are trying to do, it's what people are trying to do for their families. They're trying to optimise employment, health, education, life expectancy and financial outcomes. That's human utility summarised in a very, a very simplistic way. The problem, of course, once again, is that utility, like wealth, like novelty, doesn't lead to flourishing. And the most astonishing example of that is actually from an article I read last year, and it's for, it was from the Singapore Business Review that did a global survey. It didn't do the survey, so I think it was just reporting on it. A global survey of the happiness and life satisfaction of workforces, of people who were working all over the world. And it was all pretty sobering reading. It didn't really matter which country you came from or which country you were trying to back. But what it found, and that's why it turned up in the Singapore Business Review, is that 48% of the Singapore workforce, both locals, foreigners, PRs, EP holders, whatever, 48% of us are unhappy. And because of that, Singapore now leads the world with the most unhappiest workforce. We are number one in the world for unhappiness in our workforce. Clearly, this room and everyone online at home are exceptions to all of this, I'm sure. But doesn't that, doesn't that scare you? Doesn't that astonish you? Like, that arguably the city that's one of the most livable on the planet, right? When you talk about transport infrastructure, health infrastructure, educational infrastructure, the trustworthiness of institutions, the stability of the currency, the stability of the government, like everything 
all utility boxes have been ticked, and it's the unhappiest workforce on the planet. That tells us something, right? That backs my point up. I'm just not a random Australian guy speculating on a stage. There has to be more to flourishing than utility. There has to be more to flourishing than utility. But what is it? What is it? Mark Twain, I don't know why I'm quoting so many Americans. I don't think, I don't think this message would work in Australia. Um, I like American thinkers. I think they, they nail it. Mark Twain, who's a comedian and a great writer, probably my favourite comedic writer, he very famously and helpfully said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. The day you were born and the day you find out why. And he does something there that too many of us forget today. He links flourishing not to utility but to purpose. That's what he's doing there. He's linking flourishing to purpose, not to utility. There's only one other place you can actually find that before the 1500s, 1600s. And it's in the Bible. And it's when Jesus Christ is asked by a lawyer, ironically, what's, he's effectively asked what's the meaning of life. Now, the question is put... What's the greatest commandment? What are we supposed to do? It's a very Singaporean question, right? Just tell us what to do. Just give us the rule. What's the rule? And Jesus, you could, you could see even in the text him like rolling his eyes. And he's like, oh, you people just always want rules. And what he does is he, he gives what looks like a rule, but it's actually not a rule. He disguises it as an instruction, but it's not. He says, go and love God and love other people, right? So he's asked, what's the meaning of life? Give us the rule. He says, I'm not giving you a rule. I'm giving you two sets of purposes, to be in loving relationship with God and to be in loving relationship with one another. That's the purpose for which you were made. That's beyond utility what will lead to your flourishing, what will optimise your flourishing. And here we begin to see something interesting because we know that we need, along with our search for wealth, a commitment to relationality, we know that we need, along with our search for novelty, a pathway to redemption, and we know that we now need, beyond our search for utility, a search for a higher purpose. And we begin to now see where and how and through whom we can get that. Because these three things are not natural to how we are made. It's not natural to our instincts. When we get to work every morning, when we wake up every morning, we're not naturally geared to want to focus on relationship and redemption and purpose. We're much more naturally geared to want wealth and novelty and utility. That's our natural posture. So it's almost like there needs to be something supernatural to get us calibrated around these different first principles. Otherwise, we're just going to end up like the guys building the Tower of Babel, focused on the technology and the fun and the novelty and the utility of it, and through that, glorifying ourselves and making ourselves feel better and look better with more LinkedIn connections and more Instagram followers and more you know, retweets. So where does this supernatural short circuit, where does this supernatural circuit breaker happen? to pivot us from the natural search for wealth, novelty and utility to the supernatural first principles. The supernatural first principles that they forgot at the Tower of Babel, but that we know we now need now of relationship and relationality, of purpose, focusing in and tuning in to a higher purpose, and of, instead of, the constant searching for novelty of a pathway to redemption, to heal us somehow from the brokenness inside of us. And we see it all coming together at the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, 
Jesus experienced ultimate separation from God and from those around him. So we now can be in ultimate relationship with God and loving relationship with those around us. On the cross, Jesus experienced ultimate brokenness. He actually experienced our brokenness so that we could be healed, so we could experience redemption and restoration from that brokenness. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled his purpose so that you and I could now fulfill all of our purposes, all of the ultimate purposes for which we were made that lead to our flourishing. And what are they? Well, we know it, to be in loving relationship with God, to be in loving relationship with others, to be creative, to invent, to innovate, to improve the quality of life of ourselves and those around us, to alleviate suffering, and to do all of that by being submitted to a higher purpose that purpose of being faithful to God and in right relationship with him. So it all comes together and on the cross, Jesus makes all of that possible. Now, in the conversation that Coach Blitzer has with Doris Bannock in Cool Runnings, remember, Doris says, all I want is a gold medal. And the coach says, a gold medal can be a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And then Doris says, Coach, how will I know if I'm enough? How will I know if I'm enough? The word enough is an interesting word. Put really simply, it pretty much means to have everything that you need. And we know what we need from what I've said. We know deductively how we've unpacked it, that we need relationality, we need redemption, and we need a higher purpose. And we know we have all of those things through the person of Jesus Christ. How do we know if we're enough? If we have Jesus. Because Jesus is enough for us. And so when we embrace and we utilize and we scale and we continue to innovate further in the space of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology and all of these things, none of them, none of this stuff is intrinsically evil or intrinsically good. What what is going to matter is what we bring to it. It's going to matter is what we bring to it. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember our own brokenness. One last interesting thing about our own brokenness. Blockchain technology, everyone talks about perfect trust, perfect trust, perfect trust, because the ledger is shared, right? You can't mess with it. It's incorruptible. What they really mean is perfect accountability because zero trust, because we don't trust each other at all. That's why we need blockchain tech. That's why this is really important. Blockchain technology doesn't give us perfect trust. It mitigates against the reality that none of us are trustworthy and we have zero trust. It's perfect accountability is what it is. So what we need is someone that's perfectly trustworthy to transform us, someone who's perfectly trustworthy to give us the ultimate first principles, the things that we need that lead to our flourishing, to build pathways for loving, authentic relationships, to build pathways for redemption, and to build pathways for higher purpose. And Jesus Christ does all of that. So it's in and through him that we will be enough, because with him we have everything we need. And when we have everything we need, then everything, including decentralized finance and any other technology for that matter, becomes a bonus. It becomes an additional layer through which we can serve people and improve flourishing and create happiness and innovate and scale and do good things for other people, not because we need to, but because we can. And we're anchored in what God wants us to be anchored in, which is relationship, redemption and purpose. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you guys.